drill, we got a panoramic sense of our Lord's second coming and of the final battle. We started in the valley of Megiddo, where the Bible says that the armies of the world will one day rally to fight against the Lord and to attack, launch an attack against Israel and against Jerusalem. At the midpoint of our tour, we found ourselves in the holy city itself. We were walking there in the Kidron Valley, where we're told the blood of the slain will rise to the horse's bridle. And then the last day of our journey took us to the land of Basra, that is Edom, to a cave in the rock city of Petra, where the Jews will flee from the invaders and wait for Messiah to come to their defense and to slay their enemy. Though it's often called Armageddon, we know this final battle will be fought throughout the whole land. The enemy camps in the north. Jesus returns to the center to defend Jerusalem. And hostages flee to the south where Jesus ends up coming to their rescue. And here in Isaiah chapter 63, the prophet sees our Lord Jesus at the end of the battle. The forces that have opposed our Lord have been annihilated. The Jews who fled Jerusalem have now been rescued. The revolt that has raged for ages between sinful man and a holy God has now been decided. The coup has been struck down. King Jesus has won. And Isaiah says proudly of God's champion, he says, look at him. Just look at him. Who is this who comes from Basra with dyed garments from Basra, from Edom? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Can you hear the pride? Can you hear the praise in the voice of Isaiah? Jesus, the conquering hero, is coming back and he's looking the part, glorious in his apparel, Isaiah says. That's another way of saying to a soldier, you're a credit to the uniform. He also is traveling in the greatness of his strength. I picture Jesus marching boldly, nothing cocky, mind you, no strutting. But he strides with confidence and strength. He carries himself with dignity and with virtue and with honor. And then Isaiah asks Jesus a question. He says, why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? Jesus is fresh from the battlefield. He has been to the wine press. His robe is covered in a reddish stain. Have you ever spilt wine or maybe grape juice on a white shirt or blouse? You can forget ever getting that stain completely out. Expect a permanent mark. The wine is almost like a dye. But there's one substance that stains even worse than wine, and that's blood. There are companies today that specialize in cleansing crime scenes and removing the blood. And Jesus has gotten bloody. Isaiah notices the stains on his garments. He has been to the wine press of judgment. He has trampled the bodies of faithless men. And understand, Jesus offers no apologies here. He issues no disclaimers or justifications for his decisive actions. Only modern man is fuzzy 
about God's judgment. We are the ones who have excused our sin and denied our sin and renamed our sin and ignored its penalties and have convinced ourselves that God doesn't care, even though he has warned us that he very much cares and that he intends to judge sin for sure. Well, Jesus answers Isaiah, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. And oh, it got messy, for their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. And here's the main point of our lesson. Look closely at what else Jesus says at the end of verse 1 when Isaiah asks him, Who is this? who comes from Edom, Jesus, the conquering hero, he identifies himself. He says, I, who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Here he is, King of kings and Lord of lords. He has just proven his supremacy. He has beaten down all challengers. He has conquered all rivals Every uprising has been put down, and there is no shame in his heart. Though his robes are splattered with the blood of men, not one drop is innocent blood. He bears no guilt. His judgment is just. He has defended God's people, and he has defended God's honor. And so when Isaiah inquires, the Messiah answers, this is I who speak in righteousness. Jesus is just back from the battle, but it's clear that he's done right in every instance. In all that he's performed and in all that he has spoken, Jesus has acted justly and fairly and righteously. But notice, when the fighting ends and Jesus speaks words for which he'll be remembered, he doesn't stress his glorious victory or his righteous warring or the long-awaited judgment that he's executed, or his vindication of God's holiness. No, when the final chapter gets written, Jesus identifies himself, not as mighty to judge or mighty to conquer, but mighty to save. This is the legacy he wants to leave with us, not his skill to fight or his willingness to judge but his ability to save. You recall in Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet lists a whole repertoire of names for Messiah. He's wonderful, counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace, even mighty God. But when it's all over, Jesus doesn't focus on being mighty God. He relishes having been mighty to save. Isaiah 42, verse 13 also speaks of Jesus. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. Jesus is a mighty man. Jesus is a man of war. Yet he refers to himself when he does. It's mighty to save. Read through the Gospels and you'll discover that Jesus was mighty in a million ways. He was mighty in wisdom. Jesus corrected the scholars and confounded the skeptics, confronted the sinners and taught the disciples. Jesus was mighty in power. He calmed the stormy sea and walked on water. 
and multiplied the fish and bread and healed the sick and raised the dead. Jesus was mighty in spirit. You remember he resisted the tempter at a point of great weakness. He loved his enemies. He kept his composure when tried before Pilate. Even on the cross, he asked the Father to forgive his accusers. He was mighty in discernment. With the woman at the well, Jesus steered the conversation into deeper truths. He uncovered her her most intimate needs. He read the hearts of men, often knowing their very thoughts. And Jesus was mighty in the scriptures. Jesus had a command of God's word. He spoke simply yet powerfully. He spoke like no one else with an authority that came from God. But in Isaiah 63, at the end of the age, after all his glorious accomplishments are in the book, Jesus doesn't identify himself as mighty in wisdom or mighty in power or mighty in spirit or mighty in discernment or mighty in the scriptures. Rather, he calls himself mighty to say. This is the heart of our Lord Jesus. Here is what makes him tick. If you're looking for a motive of this, he's definitely guilty. Jesus is mighty to save. He loves saving people and at it, he is the very best. There is no one Jesus can't save. You remember Zacchaeus? That short man with a long list of sins? Hey, he was a tax collector and an enemy collaborator to boot. He had cut ties with God's people. He had burned his bridges. He decided to go out on a limb. And that's where Jesus found him. He called Zacchaeus down from the tree and invited himself for dinner. Later, the man was forgiven. He even paid restitution. Jesus is mighty to save. Take the woman who was caught in adultery. In the very act, she was naked and angry and fuming as they threw her down at Jesus' feet. Our Lord Jesus, he stared down the cruel intentions of calloused men to show this woman mercy and give her a brand new start. Oh, on that day, he was mighty to save. What about the lame man who was lowered through the roof? Jesus not only healed his crippled legs, But despite the objections of the Pharisees and the Jews, Jesus forgave the man's sins. Again, Jesus is mighty to save. And Mary Magdalene, she had been the hostile for seven demons. Yet Jesus, mighty to save, evicted them all. Or what about Saul of Tarsus? He was a Jewish rabbi who hated all things Jesus especially Jesus' followers. He was in pursuit of them when Jesus appeared to him by the road. It was as if Jesus sat down in heaven and he picked out the most unlikely convert he could find. He saw this Saul breathing threats and murder, says the scripture. This would be like Jesus picking the chief imam of ISIS or their top terrorist just to show off his amazing grace. Jesus intercepts Saul, and in one glorious moment, he chooses this man and saves him and calls him. In fact, years later, Saul, now called Paul, he explains that this is exactly what happened. He writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. 
And for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show a pattern to those who are going to believe on him. With Paul, Jesus set a precedent. He picked out the biggest bully on the block and whipped him. He saved him. Paul says, Jesus came to save sinners and to prove from the start that he's mighty to save. He even saved me. I want you to know that my eyes have seen miracles. I have seen the most unlikely people saved by God's grace. People who've been drugged through the dregs of this world, who had fully embraced the dark side and had shook their fist in God's face. Mean people. People addicted and shameful and perverted and greedy and hateful. I have seen these people get gloriously saved by Jesus. Never think that anyone is a hopeless case, that he or she is beyond the reach of Jesus' grace. They are not. This week I was speaking with my friend Lloyd Pulley, who pastors at Calvary Chapel in Old Bridge, New Jersey. Lloyd was telling me about visiting his friend, David Berkowitz. Well, that name sounded familiar. It rang a bell. I asked Lloyd, I said, isn't that the son of Sam, serial killer? He said it was. Berkowitz is still in prison. He knows he'll be there until the day he dies. But he has received the forgiveness of Jesus, and he's growing as a Christian. He's now even helping new convicts when they come into the prison. Lloyd became his friend when David contacted him after listening to Lloyd's radio program in New York. Today they talk frequently. Lloyd is convinced of the genuineness of Berkowitz's faith. For Lloyd knows that Jesus is mighty to save. Understand, saving sinners is in Jesus' wheelhouse. Salvation is his specialty. If a person is truly sincere and genuinely desires to be changed and trusts Jesus with his whole heart, there is nothing that Jesus won't forgive. Sometimes when you find a forgiving soul, it's actually an evidence of weakness. You know, people can be pushed around. People can, oh, I'll, I'll just forgive you in order to keep from actually dealing with the issue. Some folks would rather ignore an offense than deal with a legitimate injustice. They have no moral fortitude. I suppose forgiveness can become a pathology, a sickness at times. They'll say they forgive just to avoid facing down a tough situation. Believe me, this is not Jesus. He speaks and he does what is right all of the time. There is no weakness in this man. Recall, he is glorious in apparel. He is traveling in the greatness of his strength. Jesus is never manipulated. He's never conned. He's never pushed around. One day, he'll trample sinners in his fury. There's no need for me to soften these words. They're in your Bible. It is what it is. Our Lord Jesus is nobody's pushover. And when you give him no other choice, and when you, when you reject all of his overtures of mercy and harden your heart and stubbornly go your own way, he isn't queasy about this. 
He has a heart to save, but he also has the stomach to judge. Rest assured, Jesus forgives not from weakness, but from strength. Because he loves us, Jesus is mighty to save. Despite our rebellion, God continues to see his image in us. For some reason, we are still the object of his love. He planned our salvation before time began. It was Jesus' job to carry it out, and he has done so in earnest. Through his arrest, through the brutal scourging, the mock trial, he bore pain and indignities fitting for us, not him. On the cross, Jesus took the burden of our sin on his strong shoulders and willingly laid down his life for us. And thus our text tells us that this is what will characterize Jesus until the end of time. He is mighty to save. And realize this prowess to save doesn't just mean that Jesus is able to reach low, to reach down to that slimy center, bottom fish, so to speak. Jesus can save the man in the gutter. That's not all this means. To say Jesus is mighty to save means that his salvation extends from the guttermost but to the uttermost. Hebrews 7 verse 25 declares, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. It's not just about the extent from which Jesus saved us. It's about the extent to which Jesus saves us. Realize when you get to heaven, you'll never hear anyone make the comment, whoo, that was a close one. I got in by the skin of my teeth. You'll never hear that. No way. Nobody barely gets saved. Jesus is mighty to save. That means the person he saves is genuinely and eternally and fully and freely and deeply and lavishly and unequivocally saved. If you have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus, you're as forgiven as you're ever going to get. God doesn't assign parole or offer probation. He only passes out complete pardons. It's like a pregnancy. You can't be partially pregnant. You never hear anybody, well, I'm barely pregnant. And likewise, you can't be barely saved or partially saved. You're either saved or you're not. Our Lord Jesus is mighty to save. That means that he covers all the bases. He is attentive to all the details. Nothing slips through the cracks or escapes his notice. His salvation is comprehensive and guaranteed. For example, Jesus forgives all our sin, past sin, present sin. My, even our future sins we've yet to commit. Certainly, we need to confess those sins when they occur. We need to live in an attitude of faith and repentance but even our future sins have been washed by the blood of Jesus and are now covered by his blood. Jesus paid for it all. His salvation is comprehensive coverage. It includes forgiveness, acceptance, peace, restoration, healing, joy, wisdom, the baptism and power of his spirit, spiritual gifts, streets of gold, blessings untold. It's all in the policy, friend. 
And if you're not experiencing a full and free salvation, you're living below your privileges. Jesus provides for your victory, for our agent is mighty to save. On an overseas flight, two men, a Christian and a Hindu, they were sitting next to each other. They had stirred up a conversation between them. It eventually got around to religion. Well, at one point, the Christian asked this man, can you give me a single sentence, you know, a one-liner that captures the essence of your faith? The Hindu man, he thought for a minute, and he said, yes. We are all part of the problem, and we are all part of the solution. Well, the Christian man thought about that for a long time. Finally, he said, would you like to hear a one-liner that captures the essence of the Christian faith? Hindu man said, yes. The Christian replied, we are all part of the problem, but there is only one man who is the solution, and his name is Jesus. It's interesting what Jesus says to Isaiah when he comes up from Basra. I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. The fury he unleashes, the righteous anger Jesus demonstrates will be very personal. No one will be with him. When it comes to judgment, he will do it all alone. All along, Jesus has taken our rebellion personally. And what an irony. The millions upon millions of cries for justice that have been ringing in the ears for sin of the ears of God for centuries will finally be satisfied by the one who is mighty to save. It seems Jesus can be trusted with God's judgment because he and he alone has proven to be mighty to save. While on earth, Jesus went out of his way to get other people involved in his work. When he healed the sick, he often recruited the help of others. When he raised Lazarus, you remember he asked folks, to move the stone. When he multiplied the loaves and fish, he used a little boy's lunch. Jesus was always involving others in his exploits. But there are two things that Jesus chooses to do solo. He hangs on a cross to author our salvation. And he treads out the wine press to bring God's ultimate judgment. And Jesus did the former so he could minimize the latter. I hope you never tire of participating in communion. For the bread speaks to us of his broken body, the wine of his poured out blood. Never take either for granted. For one day, when Jesus returns to right all wrongs, to finally put sinners in their place, to usher in his glorious kingdom of righteousness. Even in the midst of it all, Jesus will still and for always be known as he who is mighty.